Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. On the religious front, as many of you know, because I quoted this recently, for the first time in the 80-year history of the Gallup Houses of Worship survey, religious Americans are now in the minority. American membership in a house of worship sits at 47%. That's churches, synagogues, and mosques. 47%, first time in history. It's been that low. Trevin Wax, who's the editor of the Gospel for the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources and a visiting professor at Wheaton College, says if you look at the data, it really is in the last 20 years that this decline has become much faster and more precipitous when it comes to who is identifying as a church member, who says that they are a member of a mosque or a synagogue or a church. The quickness of the drop-off is a pretty stunning collapse. Well, beyond and behind the obvious legal and religious demographic changes lies something much deeper and something much more fundamental. So on the cultural front, which Josh will be addressing, and all three of these gentlemen actually will be addressing uh, elements of these topics I've just raised. But on the cultural front, in Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies, he quotes American sociologist and cultural critic Philip Reif. Reif was not a religious believer, but in his landmark 1966 book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Reif said the death of God in the West had given birth to a new civilization devoted to liberating the individual to seek his own pleasures and to managing emergent anxieties. Religious man who lived according to belief in transcendent principles that ordered human life around communal purposes had given way to psychological man who believed that there was no transcendent order and that life's purpose was to find one's own way experimentally. Man no longer understood himself to be a pilgrim on a meaningful journey with others, but as a tourist who traveled through life according to his own self-designed itinerary with personal happiness as his ultimate goal. If there is no sacred order, then the original promise of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, ye shall be as gods, is the foundational principle of the new culture. And he said church leaders were lying to themselves about the ability of the institutions they led to resist the therapeutic. Reef foresaw the future of religion as devolution into watery spirituality, which could accommodate anything. Now, if you recall, that's in 1966. Reef lived long enough to see that prediction come true. In 2005, the sociologists of religion Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the decadent form of Christianity, in fact all faiths, had taken in contemporary America. It consisted of the general belief that God exists and wants nothing more from us than to be nice and to be happy. Well, I was ordained in 1992, and I've served my years as a pastor watching Reef's predictions come true in our culture. But Christ has not changed. He still rules and reigns at the right hand of God. He is not surprised, nor is he dismayed by these cultural shifts. His gospel has not changed. Men and women are still called to repent and believe from all of our sins. And the mission of his church has not changed. We are appointed to this moment in history. As Paul said to the Athenians when he was standing on the Areopagus, God foresaw and foreknew, he chose what time and what place each man and woman would live and the boundaries of their habitation, perhaps so that they would search for him. He also said at the end of Matthew, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. So men and women, it is our task, even in this time, to understand this age 
and to continue with the work of making disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And that includes Halifax County. So how will changing Virginia and U.S. law affect our ability to do ministry? Why have so many millennials embraced moralistic therapeutic, therapeutic deism over Christ? What strategies should the church pursue to reach the next generation? That is why we sponsored Reaching the Next Generation for Christ conference, and that's why you're here tonight. Our speakers this weekend are uniquely qualified to help us grapple with these issues. Todd Shockley is a prosecuting attorney for Fluvanna County, Virginia. In 2019, he was certified to serve as a special assistant U.S. attorney. He has presented as a lecturer for various legal educational venues with topics extending from firearms to drug prosecutions and the law of evidence. Todd lives in Charlottesville with his wife, Rachel, and has one of the most incisive minds of anyone in his generation that I know. Todd has focused that legal mind on the Virginia Values Act for us and how we can expect it to affect life and ministry in our time, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome him. Would you join me? Good start, buddy. You sit up high, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, your lift would be great. <laughs> Got it? That's good. Good. <clears throat> Should a Jewish deli be forced to sell ham? Should an African-American tailor be forced to make a Ku Klux Klan hood? Should a Christian photographer be forced to shoot a wedding between two men or perhaps a man and his vehicle, which are actual cases? Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Todd Shockley. Um, as uh, Dane said, I am an attorney. I have the credentials to prove it after, at the end of this if you have any doubts. <laughs> um, but we will be talking about uh, a couple of topics tonight that are going to have real and very tangible effects in all of our lives, whether we know it or not, because the law has changed underneath us um, in some pretty insidious ways. Next. So let's get some... Uh, Legalese out of the way. This is what I call the don't sue me slide. Um, I have probably copyrighted or taken things out of copyright and put in this slideshow. I'm using it under the fair use doctrine. This is for educational purposes, so don't sue me. Next slide. <laughs> Word on legal advice. This is not legal advice, okay? If you forget everything else I said, don't do that either, but um, this is not legal advice. Virginia law says a prosecutor cannot uh, be engaged in the private practice of law Nothing I say tonight should be deemed as legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, A, you probably do, and B, I'm not him. Okay, see the aforementioned slide, don't sue me. Uh, next slide. <laughs> Preliminary thoughts, guys. We are here under a topic that is driven by love. We are here to figure out how to reach the next generation, mine and beyond, for Christ. I'm going to say things that may come across on their face as offensive. They are not intended to be offensive. But in American culture, causing offense is the greatest sin we can commit. I'm going to try to speak truth in love, but I'm going to speak truth even if it may sting. If you disagree with me, let's talk. I want to have a dialogue. At the end of this, we're going to loop back to this identical slide. I literally copy and pasted it. Um, everything that we're going to talk about has helped prepare us to engage in what is going to come our way, especially those engaged in commerce. Um, and so we're going to talk really about four different, um, pardon me, three different uh, uh, fields of topic. But before we dive into the VVA, the Virginia Values Act, I'm going to give you a five-minute primer on uh, the source of our rights and uh, really where the law is coming from as it applies to us as citizens. Um, next, I'm going to 
talk about the VVA, which is the Virginia Values Act, what it talks about, how it's recently been amended, and how that is going to apply to all persons, whether they are a business owner, whether they're an employer, uh, or whether they're just um, uh, someone engaged in commerce themselves. And then we'll take up some questions at the end. Okay, so we are gonna dive into what usually takes several weeks of constitutional law, and we're gonna do it in five minutes. We timed us, uh, and we did it in about four and a half minutes at home on Thursday, so hold on to your seats, and next slide. Okay, rights come from three different places. The first concept is that rights originate from God. This is the natural law theory. This is what our founders believed in. It is actually in our, our founding documents. You know, these rights are inalienable, that which means they, they arise from our mere existence as human beings. There's a concept in property law that says rent arises from the land. There is an idea that law exists outside of human beings creating it. That is no longer, as you may guess, popular. Common law, that developed in Western countries and some Eastern countries where the government through its court systems announced what the law is. In Virginia, there is no code section to tell you what a robbery is. There's just a code section that tells you how to punish it. Robbery under Virginia is the forcible taking of the personal property of another by uh, force that or intimidation or presentation of a firearm. Boom, right? So that is a common law statement of robbery that is done through the announcement by courts. Uh, that is still part of Virginia law. We inherited that from our British overlords and we still produce some ourselves. And then the third source of rights is government. The government says you now have this right, enjoy. Okay, next. All right, the U.S. Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments were not part of the original Constitution. We had to wait a few years to get them. They are ratified circa 1791. So that's amendments one through 10. 10 has been shot to death, rehabilitated, and shot again. Um, so the 10th Amendment is pretty much dead. Now, as they were first ratified, the Bill of Rights were specifically designed to prohibit the federal government. Congress shall make no laws, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, uh, uh, Chief Justice Marshall announced in the case I cited there that the express purpose of the first 10 amendments were to limit the federal government, which means the states did not have to apply to them. We had this little scuffle in the 1860s, um, and the result of that was essentially over the fight of which was superior, the state government or the federal government the feds won uh, with the North behind them. So the Civil War, uh, after the dust settled, uh, the Congress passed a number of what we call Reconstruction Era Amendments. Out of that came uh, a, a bunch of positive law, don't get me wrong, and one of which is the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment, later through a series of Supreme Court's uh, decisions, applied the first 10 amendments against the states. So now state governments and local governments have to comply with the Bill of Rights. Okay, tracking? So here's the 14th Amendment. Now I confess, by the way, I printed off my notes and the font is too small for me to read. So uh, I may be playing along with you guys as we go through this slide. I am getting older than I thought. Um, all right, so did we skip the First Amendment? I thought I had the first first, did I? Nope, yep, okay, there we go, all right. So the First Amendment, uh, so I've got it right here. Uh, essentially, there's a number of clauses that we look at for purposes of our discussion the three we're interested in tonight are the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, and the Freedom of Speech Clause. Those are embodied in the First Amendment. So basically the government can't establish your religion, they can't um, interfere with your right to express you know, your religious uh, desires, and they can't interfere with how you speak. But now they can. Next. This was applied uh, against the states uh, in the 14th Amendment. So this is actually the 14th Amendment, which I think has four sections. The first section is one we all like to talk about because the other three are pretty boring. Um, so you have privileges and immunities, not gonna talk about that tonight. Due process, the essentially talks about how laws are enacted, have to be done fairly. Um, and then equal protection says that uh, all citizens must be afforded an equal protection under the law. It literally says it on its face, but what that means it has to be unpacked, uh, unpacked by the courts. Next. All right, judicial review. Again, lightning round. So. When someone challenges a law that interferes with one of their rights, again, from whatever source the rights uh, are derived, governments or the, the courts will uh, analyze the 
scrutiny with which they look at the law through three different bases. The first is the lowest level, rational basis. Basically means they're going to presume the law is lawful, and so long as there are any rational reason for the law to exist, it's going to be deemed to be a constitutional law. The intermediary review, as it might uh, say on its face, it's kind of stuck in the middle. Um, that typically deals with gender issues, but it's being expanded. But strict scrutiny is going to be the one we're probably going to deal with more in the context of First Amendment. So that is the most difficult one for a law to survive in. If a law is being analyzed under the strict scrutiny standard, which I have listed underneath of it, it is typically going to fail and be determined to be unconstitutional. Most laws will not rise to the level of com a compelling state interest that is the least restrictive means of getting there and not narrowly tailored enough. So there's, there's usually ways that those laws get defeated. Um, now, the way we look at it is going to be where the speech takes place, how it takes place, who the speaker is. It's a very fact-intensive question as to what level of review we, we use. So you may see this in court hearings. Just be aware we have different filters that laws have to get pushed through in this context. Next. All right. Um, if you watch YouTube, you'll see any number of, of people screaming, it's my right. Well, no, it's not your right there, Karen. There's a lot of things you're not allowed to say. Um, so here's a list of, of things that are not allowed. You've heard the expression, you can't yell fire in a theater. You can't commit fraud. You can't incite violence. Um, obscenity laws, if you go to Virginia Beach, you'll see like the no swearing sign. So there, there are laws out there that says, that say, yeah, you can't say that because saying that is against public interest and so uh, there are exceptions to every rule. And I'll have a link actually to a two-page PDF you all can go to uh, to read up more about just free speech generally. Next slide. Huh? Right? Right on fire, right? All right, all right moving on. Yeah, pretty good, right? Um, all right, so the Virginia Values Act. This is going to be probably the bulk of our discussion, and it, it's going to get down into the, the weeds. So if you have a question mid-time, do we want to take questions mid-flow? Mid yeah, just pop your hand up and rip it off. All right, next slide. Okay, so the Virginia Values Act is neatly settled in the boring part of Virginia code, um, the administration of government, but this is startling to me. It is in the Human Rights Act. Where do the rights originate? Natural law, common law, and government given. So by the very placement of the laws we're about to talk about, our General Assembly has determined that what we are about to uh, go through are deemed to be natural rights. Okay? If it's a human right, then it can't be given to us by the courts or the governments because it is our right by mere existence. So the very placement of this statute should call into question the thought process behind it. So uh, Senator Eben, we're going to hear from him in a little bit about some of the animus he has toward religion. He posited this bill last year going into effect, effect July 1st that added um, extra protections for people based on their gender identity and sexual orientation. Next slide. Here's what the governor said about it after he scrubbed the shoe polish off his face. Um, we are building an inclusive commonwealth where there is opportunity for everyone and for everyone where everyone is treated fairly. No longer will LGBTQ Virginians have the fear of being fired, evicted, or denied service in public places uh, of who they are. It's his grammar, not mine. Um, on its face, that sounds great. We don't want to live in a society where people are denied access to goods or services, or they're fired, or they're uh, denied uh, credit because of some sort of immutable characteristic. Okay? That's what the civil rights era was about in the 60s. Um, it defeated the Jim Crow laws to make sure that uh, citizens of color had access to the same thing citizens um, uh, who weren't of color. Right? That was the whole basis of it. And thank God for it, we should have equal protection under the laws. What this bill did, though, however, is it added two new categories of protected classes that are what constitutional law would call immutable characteristics. So it's the same thing as the color of your skin is now your sexual orientation and your gender identity. Next slide. Okay. Lots of classes here should be a no-brainer. These are protected classes. So people are protected based on their race, their color, religion, national origin, sex, pregnancy. We, we keep going. And then right here they, they slide it in their sexu sex, sexual orientation and gender identity. 
there is more bills on the table right now that are likely getting passed um, to add um, military status uh, to this class as well. So it expands veteran to all, all folks who are either in the military or related to military folks. So the VVA is currently alive well and expanding. Now the places where people are um, protected are places of accommodation. So I actually have the definition of that, but really it's any place or business offering or holding out to the general public goods, services, privileges, facilities, advantages, or accommodation. That's important. We're going to go back to that. Basically, that is a broad definition to hold out almost any sort of public institution. That's going to affect churches, schools, etc. Next. Okay. Here is an exception that is utterly meaningless. Um, it, it says on its face that these, these prohibitions that we're about to get into aren't going to apply to a place of accommodation owned by or operated on behalf of a religious corporation, association, or society that is not, in fact, open to the public or any establishment that is not, in fact, open to the public. How many churches meet that definition? So the General Assembly made a nice big jaw here and then pulled all the teeth out of it. So just, just remember that this exception's there and has yet to be litigated, and I'm looking forward to them um, calling this out for what it is. Um, so you may hear about the exception when this actually does start to hit the media, well, if it hits the media. Um, I believe, it is my opinion, that this is um, a whole lot of nothing. Next slide. Okay. We're going to talk heavily about employer-employee relationships because I think that's a very tangible thing for us to, to interact with. But this law also applies to private citizens engaged in commerce, okay? So if, if you're just holding yourself out to the public writ large, this isn't just an employer-employee relationship, but it's like a customer and store owner type of relationship can be established under the VVA. But for those of you who are in business, an employer is a pretty broad definition. It's 15 or more people. Right, and then you can see the qualifications. Now, however, in the context of somebody getting canned, the definition breaks down a little bit further. So if someone's being fired on all of the protected classes except for age, then it's any employer who has more than five people in their company. If you're getting canned because of your age, then it's five but fewer than 20. I don't know what happens if you're at 21. Um, it doesn't say. So employer is a pretty broad definition. For, so for you business owners, be aware that's out there before you make an employment decision. It's, it's not just for terminating, but it's also for hiring, and we'll see that when we get to that slide. So just be aware that's a pretty broad definition of, of employer. Next. Okay. There are good things in these amendments, right? This is not to vilify the entire law. It is to give you an idea of what the law covers and how broad it is. So there's excellent law that was added to protect women. And so they actually have laws in there to define uh, sex and gender, or the basis of sex and gender, to include women who are pregnant, uh, they're dealing with childbirth or any conditions related to being pregnant. That includes lactation. So an employer can't fire a woman because she's breastfeeding. Fantastic protections. I'm surprised it wasn't already in the law. This is one of those well-duh things, right? So there are good parts of this law. Unfortunately, it's now piggybacked into the parts of the law that I, I think many faith-based persons, not just Christians, but faith-based persons are going to find significant problems with. So I, I hope if this law is ever addressed, we can dig out the good stuff and get rid of the abscessed parts. Next. All right. Really important definitions here. So I'm actually going to read them out loud in case you're like me and you can't read your own writing from you know, the back row. Um, gender identity is gender-related identity, appearance, or other gender-related characteristics of an individual. This is important. With or without regard to the individual's designated sex at birth. So that is a subjective standard, not objective. You can't measure that. It's what the person's perception is. Okay, so gender identity obviously then is not an external perspective, but one that the person themselves designates. So sexual orientation means a person's actual or perceived heterosexuality, bisexuality, or homosexuality. Again, that is a subjective standard, not an objective standard. It is based on the individual's perception, actual or perceived. Um, and that cuts both ways. So if, if you perceive someone to have a certain characteristic, that could cut against you. So because of race, or on the basis of race, now actually includes uh, historical traits that are associated. And they give examples such as hair, uh, uh, styling, braids, locks, twists. Okay? So it's in the law. So just know that that is the, the, 
breadth with which the definitions have been cast for us to live in and work within. Thank you. All right. Here's the really scary part. Um, under Virginia law, if you are sued, you can be sued for a number of things. You can be sued for what's called equitable relief, which is where you're told to do something or stop doing something. So here that would be um, an injunction is how courts tell someone to start doing something or stop doing something, such as a restraining order. It's also going to compel someone to cease a pattern of behavior that the court perceives is persistent. Uh, essentially, it's going to compel someone to comply with the VVA's protections or else, comply with this chapter or else, okay? So that's equitable. That's a court telling you what you have to do. That changes your behavior. Now here, there's a civil penalty associated if the attorney general files suit against you. We'll get to who can sue here in a second. So if the AG, Mr. Herring himself or his, his soon to come um, uh, attache wants to file a lawsuit against you, they can. For your first offense, it's $50,000 fine. Okay. Second offense is 100000 Now, uh, as prosecutors, we have to have what's called a unit of prosecution. We have to know what the offenses are, and we, we can lump them together. But the law does not say what the unit of prosecution, what the unit of punishment is here. So a, as of right now, it is feasible, at the way the law is written, that if they find on Monday you discriminated against a protected class, you can be fined $50,000 for Monday. And if they find that you discriminated all week, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is $100,000 a day. Okay, so that right now is not defined. There's no cap that I, I have found in the law. Um, usually in Western society, you have to pay for your own lawyer. Win or lose, you gotta pay for your own lawyer unless a statute says you gotta pay for the other side's lawyer or by contract, okay? So here's a statute that says the losing party, pardon me, the prevailing party um, does not have to pay for their attorney's fees. So the loser has to pay for the other side's reasonable attorney fees and costs. And when attorneys in these big law firms are billing out $500 an hour and they spend a year in litigation, you can see attorney's fees alone can bankrupt someone. But you'll see I skipped that third bullet. <laughs> so you can be found liable for compensatory damages. That is the type of damage class that makes someone whole. Um, I got rear-ended in South Boston a couple years ago. Um, and it caused a permanent neck injury um, and uh, potential brain damage. We'll let you know. I appreciate it. Um, and so at the, at the end of that, I, I had to initiate suit because the insurance company was pretty dumb. Um, but the monetary recovery I made was to pay my medical bills and to put me back in a position as if the harm never happened. That is a compensatory compensation damages. Not a big deal, it's, it's gonna be hard to prove compensation. Oftentimes it's $1 in social cases. I, I plead $1 compensatory. But here's the scary thing, is punitive damages. Punitive means punishment. Punitive equals punishment. Under Virginia law, under Title 8.01 something, 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 um, there is a cap to punitive damages. A jury could return a multi-million dollar punishment damage verdict, but by law it has to be reduced down to $350,000. That's the punitive cap. However, the VVA did away with that. Next slide. This is Delegate Simon from Fairfax. If you don't, speaking about this law, if you don't want to be subject to unlimited punitive damages, don't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. I mean, this wasn't meant to be a non-punitive bill. This was not meant to be a non-punitive bill. We created a private right of action for a reason, and so I think the bill accomplishes exactly what it's intended to do in the form that's intended to do it. Actual bankruptcy, unlimited punitive damages. Hundreds of millions of dollars literally could be uh, returned on a verdict. Next slide. Okay, so we got your attention as to what can happen. Now who can start it? So any number of persons can start this. Any protected class can initiate a complaint. We'll get to that, I think, in the next slide. But for this slide, we're going to talk about the AG. So the AG is the government. The Attorney General is in, in charge of enforcing Virginia's laws. I mean, this is, this is the apex of Virginia government, is the Attorney General's enforcement of the laws. So the AG can actually file a civil action if they have reasonable cause, another term that's not defined. We know what probable cause is. That's in the Constitution. Reasonable cause 
to my knowledge, has no definition under the code section. It may have a common law definition I'm unaware of. But if they find reasonable cause to believe that there's a pattern or practice of the person uh, that's going to be sued is actually resistant to the VVA's rights, or they're basically engaged in a series of discriminatory practices, and that the lawsuit is of such issue as to raise public interest, then the Attorney General, the government of Virginia, can file a lawsuit against an individual, a baker, whatever. There's also an intervention statute that allows private citizens to intervene once the AG has filed suit. So if you're a baker, like that gentleman in Colorado who we will talk about, uh, who gets sued by the government, say the person who wanted to buy a cake or person who thought they couldn't buy a cake because of whatever discriminatory practice they were afraid of, they could actually join in the, the lawsuit and become a party to the lawsuit, um, so long as they plead that they're an aggrieved person. And vice versa, a private citizen can actually initiate the suit and the AG can plead their way into it as well. Next slide. All right, so who finds reasonable cause? I'm glad you asked. So the Division of Human Rights, <coughs> Human Rights, um, begins an investigation after getting a sworn complaint of a citizen alleging discrimination. So the division completes their investigation and turns it back over to the AG. And in that, there is an opinion letter where the division determines whether reasonable cause exists for the complaint. Now, if they do find that the reasonable cause exists, the division itself will then contact the offender, the discriminating party, and immediately endeavor, that's a direct quote, to eliminate the discriminatory behavior. Okay? So they're going to take essentially pretrial steps to get you in line and comply. So if they are unable to reach reconciliation with the um, offending party, they will then tell the party that initiated the complaint in the first place, the person who said, I believe I was discriminated against, that they have all these options under the law. So they will then walk them to the courthouse, as it were. Next slide. All right. So employer prohibitions. So generally speaking, employers, you cannot hire fired, discharge, or any way uh, discriminate against a person based on their gender identity or their sexual orientation, right? But also all those, all those dots, those ellipses, is that whole list of, of classes of people that we talked about earlier, right? So there's good things in this law. No one should be fired because of the color of their skin or the um, uh, religion that they practice, right? That, that, that is something I think most Americans should agree with. Um, but because this amendment, effective last July, adds in the subjective standards of a person's own perceived identity, an employer could be liable to that person if that person receives any sort of discrimination, perceived discrimination. We'll talk about it in the next slide, but not quite yet. Um, so essentially, if you in any way use gender identity or sexual orientation in any of your employment practices, you could be liable under the statute. Um, next slide. But here's, here's the critical part of this. So an employer is guilty of an unlawful employment practice when sexual orientation or gender identity is a motivating factor for any employment practice, even though other factors motivate the practice. So get that. Let's assume, just by uh, analogy, that you have a church that employs 10 people. One of the persons is routinely late mishandles funds and has just a general bad attitude. You want to get rid of this person. If that person has a perceived sexual orientation or gender identity that falls within the VVA and you fire them, they can then turn around and file a complaint against you. Even though they were fired for all those other factors, because they fall within one of these classes, they could plead that they were discriminated against as part of the firing decision. So if you have any basis, whatever, for firing a person based on their subjective self-identity, you're liable under the statute. Even if they're a cruddy employee needed to go anyways, even if they were stealing money from the till, if they think part of it had to do with their protected class, you could be drug into court. Next slide. School and church? Or a church. Or a church, or a church um, become liable or potentially liable if they are der directed to have a patron 
use a gender-specific bathroom that that person does not identify with. Is that, is that fair? Um, short answer is I believe yes, uh, because it's that person's subjective standard about their identity. Um, and as we'll see in one of the pending lawsuits, um, even if there are other factors that would weigh on the institutions not wanting to agree with that, such as, say, safety, um, say, putting a boy in a girl's locker room, right, a teenage boy, um, that under this statute, yes, I believe that there would be liability. Not legal advice. <laughs> so, um, but that is one of the actions that is now pending. Um, next slide. Okay, so Calvary Road Baptist Church and I believe three other plaintiffs, and a plaintiff is the word we use for the person who is complaining. So plaint, complain, there you go. So the plaintiffs here is a church, a Christian school, and an insurance group. They retain the services of the Alliance Defending Freedom. I'll refer to ADF here in a little bit. The ADF is the conservative slash intelligent response to the ACLU. Um, they retained the services of ADF and filed a lawsuit soon after the enactment of the VVA. Among their various complaints, it's, it's a multi-page complaint. I think there's 40 pages in the complaint. Um, they have multiple allegations, but in some, they are healthcare providers is one of them that is required to provide gender transition medications and procedures, um, even though it's a Christian organization where they have fundamental and sincerely held religious beliefs where they do not believe that people uh, should be changed their identities, their gender identities, they would under this law be required to pay for it. So that, that's one of the, the groups. Um, the church and the Christian school have filed suit under the grounds that they are not allowed to hire persons um, or make hiring decisions based on a person's gender identity. Uh, for example, they, they have alleged that if they had a candidate apply for a position of, say, head pastor, uh, and is otherwise uh, potentially qualified, if that person uh, is um, practicing homosexual or is um, a trans person, and the church finds that that is contrary to their, their religious beliefs, their First Amendment beliefs, they feel that under this law, they'd be required to hire that person or have a decision other than their gender or gender identity or sexual orientation as to why they would not hire that person. So they have sued because they feel like their First Amendment rights are being chilled. That's an important word, chilled. Because uh, as we'll see in three slides, in First Amendment jurisprudence, you have to be able to show a harm whenever you sue. So that's just general law. But in the First Amendment, there is the idea that your ability to speak is chilled or you're, you're afraid to speak because of a law, okay? It's called the chilling effect of a law. So these, these institutions are scared of the effects of this law even though they have not yet been sued, okay? That's gonna be really important as we'll talk about it uh, in the next slides. We can jump over. So uh, on the same theory of we have to make hiring decisions within the context of the VVA. These organizations are also concerned about what happens if one of our employees then changes their identity, uh, such as if Dane wanted to become Danielle, you know? And if Jane, Dane decided on, under his subjective standard of his sexual identity, if he wanted to change it, that would become contrary to the closely held position of this church this elder-led church, right? And the church would have to make a, a decision as to whether he could maintain a position as head pastor. And under the law, he could not be fired. He could turn around and file suit against um, the church with unlimited damages. So they filed suit um, on that ground. Now, there, we talked about clauses earlier in the First Amendment. Lawyers love clauses, right? Um, and the clause right here is the accommodation clause. So, Krista, you asked about whether gendered bathrooms are an issue. Well, what about gendered Bible studies? So they have a women's Bible study, and if a man wants to join that, um, does that man have to be permitted? And the answer is yes. Under the law, the man has to be permitted to join that. Um, whether that man was designated male at birth 
or by decision at some other point, whether by surgery, whether by medications, whatever. The law doesn't say. It's just, would they have to accommodate him? And under the law, the answer is yes. So they filed suit under that. But here's another one that we'll see in the next case um, is the publication clause. So the law is posited in such a way that you cannot in any way publicize in any fashion, whether in writing, whether in like a podcast, on your website, on your handouts, any sort of stance that would violate the VVA. So for instance, if the church on its website were to say, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman and those values are reflected in our hiring practices, at that moment they're violating the statute because they've publicized their position, the position that is anathema to the VVA. So at that point, a person could uh, conceivably say, well, I, I might apply to that church, so I'm going to file suit. So you feeling a chilling effect here? Yeah, and so actually I, I, I spoke with the ADF head attorney who actually filed this suit, um, and she told me that uh, there actually has been a chilling effect here. And so without going into a lot of detail, these organizations had to actually change how they publicize themselves in fear of being sued with unlimited damages or being um, brought to court by the Attorney General with all of these tens of thousands of dollars of fines. So there's been actual, actual harm here because a private organization, though under the law it's a place of accommodation, um, has had to change how it engages with the, the public, even though that engagement is under the First Amendment. Okay? At the end of this, we're going to talk about what we're really dealing with. We're in a conflict of rights here. Next slide. All right, here is important, here's some important information. I chose this uh, picture carefully. Um, <laughs> this is Senator Eben. This is the patron of the bill, right? This quote is not about the VVA. But this is his thought process about religion. So the senator said of a bill that was uh, passed in 2016 that that bill carved out a space for bigotry cloaked under the guise of religious freedom. That bill was to permit under the Virginia code that talks about religious freedom, ironically, it would allow a pastor or an officiant to say, I will not officiate a marriage that is not between one man and one woman. It was going to give clergy an exception to not engage in that. That law passed. That was the senator's statement against it. So if you want to talk about actual hostility in our General Assembly, the man who sponsored the bill that added these two clauses to the Virginia Values Act. That's his thought process as it applies to another bill that applies to religious freedom. So the law passed 2016, next slide. So wake up everyone. This is the law on the right. Right here at the... It's so exciting. Um, right here at the top it says religious freedom and marriage. That law passed, but Governor Terry McAuliffe vetoed it. So I pulled up the law in our Lexis database and actually pulled up his, the Constitution requires him to make a written filing as to whenever he vetoes something. This is what he wrote, and actually quoted a pretty large chunk of it. He essentially says that it, it is couched as a religious freedom bill, but it's nothing more than an attempt to stigmatize. Here's what he says next, and I'll read it for those in the back. Any legitimate protections afforded by the bill are duplicative of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, as well as the Constitution of Virginia and the Virginia Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Just let the hypocrisy of that sink in for a second. Any additional protections are styled in a manner that prefers one religious viewpoint, that marriage can only exist between a man and woman, over all other viewpoints. Such a dynamic is not only unconstitutional, it equates discrimination it equates to discrimination under the guise of religious freedom. So he vetoed the bill. He killed it. Last weekend, the Virginia DNC had a gubernatorial debate. Terry McAuliffe won that debate and currently leads with a 47-point margin. The next highest candidate running for our next governor is at 10 points. So the man who vetoed this bill, who has that hostility toward giving preachers the ability to choose who they marry, is likely going to be our next governor if our voting patterns mirror what happened in the last election cycle. That's our next governor. Next slide.
All right, this is Bob. Bob up to Grove. Well, he's up to Creek right now because, sorry, Bob. Um, so the last lawsuit I failed to mention was filed in state court. All right, that was filed up in Loudoun County. Um, and it is, I meant to tell you this, uh, it is set for what's called a plea in bar, which is fancy pants talk for uh, Herring, the attorney general, and the other parties who were sued have filed to dismiss the lawsuit for a lack of what we lawyers call standing. They basically said that the four people who filed lawsuit, or the four organizations, don't have any standing because they have not been harmed. They have not actually been sued. They have not actually have any, suffered any sort of damage, right? Now, why the chilling effect is important is because in the limited context of First Amendment jurisprudence, it is such a sacred right, this is actual language coming from our Supreme Court precedent, the chilling effect, the mere fact that a law would change how you want to speak or compel you to speak in a way you don't want to speak or to compel you to associate in a way you don't want to associate, the mere chilling effect is enough to give you standing to bring a lawsuit against a law, okay? That's important. That is now in state court set to be heard July something um, for the court to determine whether there's even standing for the, the litigation to move forward. They're trying to kill the bill, trying to kill the lawsuit. Bob here filed in federal court in the Eastern District. Bob's a photographer. He's an artist. And we'll talk about why this is important because he is an artist. He engages in the creative conduct. He creates photographs and he even uh, writes about it on his website. However, he filed suit because the publication clause that we talked about earlier prohibits him from being able to publicize on his website that he will only do marriages between a man and a woman based on his sincerely held religious beliefs, right? So he actually has to either not publicize that, which then is the government telling him how to speak, or he publicizes it and risks unlimited punitive damages. Puts him in between what we call a Hobson's choice. That means it's no real choice there. So he filed suit. Um, next slide. Bob lost. Um, the federal court dismissed the action in what's called a memorandum opinion, and the federal judge had some, there was some good language in it. It's, it's, it's not a, it's, I think it's a pyrrhic victory for, for Herring. We're coming back at him. Um, they dismissed it for lack of standing, saying basically Bob has not been sued. He has not actually suffered harm, so he does not have standing to bring this. Bob has to wait to face actual bankruptcy before he can be uh, bring the suit. They do make some good finding. This is important here because Bob is engaged in the creative capacities of actually creating art through photography. The court does find that Bob's actions as a photographer arguably fall within the First Amendment. That's an important victory in that language because it's essentially a federal court conceding that the act of creating something, even though it's a commercial transaction, is a protected First Amendment right. He is acting, he is speaking through his art. That's an important victory. And it also finds that publicizing who he will be able to do his art for also falls under the VVA's prohibitions. So essentially, there are concessions in the federal court that Bob's got a case. Bob just got to get, wait to get sued and face bankruptcy. So that was March 31st is when that was uh, initiated. The attorney I was talking to emailed me yesterday morning and said they've appealed it. They're going up to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a federal circuit that oversees most of the Mid-Atlantic uh, area that is also full of more leftward-leaning judges. So I don't have a lot of hope we'll get a, a solid rule out of that. Um, so I don't know where Bob's case is going to go, but it is up on appeal. And ADF is, is going to keep bringing the fight. Again, I think they've got a powerful argument that Bob has actually chilled. His, his speech has to change or he's going to face ruin, financial ruin or, or worse. Um, so that's, the, that's one of the several cases uh, pending in the Virginia courts. Next slide. Okay. Questions heretofore. Why can't I sue Kanye West? Okay, so, uh, it, okay, so essentially, does, does that capture the heart of it? Why can't I bring an action against a speech I find offensive? Right, I'm, I'm in a stop sign or a stoplight. Somebody's blasting out of his car horrible things about what's happening to women. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's ungodly. Sure. And, and yet they have the freedom mm -hmm. to say whatever they want. Turn the radio on. Yeah. You're, you're describing Mr. Worldwide, also known as Pitbull. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, so the question is, you know, how can someone be free to pollute the air with uh, speech I find offensive? Well, well, God bless it, that's what the First Amendment's about. It gives people the rights to be able to speak in a way the rest of us don't like. See, for example, burning the American flag. Uh, the, the, the jurisprudence coming out of the 60s and 70s finds that that is protected speech, and that's exactly the type of grossly offensive, disgusting speech that most Americans absolutely hate. It's that type of speech the First Amendment protects. Okay? And so we don't want the government telling us what is and is not sanctioned, or, or is and is not uh, 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 sanctioned, what is permitted and what is uh, wholesome speech. Um, also, side note, don't burn the flag. Um, it is also a violation of the law uh, in the United States Code, even though it is protective um, speech. So you, another answer for you is, in America, anyone can sue anyone for any reason. Anyone can sue anyone for any reason. That does not mean you're going to win. There's pretrial motions. Uh, in Virginia, it's a demur. Did I pronounce that right, Tracy? Demur. Um, in Virginia, we like to use Latin. Um, and so it's essentially a, a pretrial motion to dismiss a case because they fail to plead uh, a sufficient matter um, to say there's no cause of action. You, you've heard that phrase before, cause of action. You see that, that delegates uh, quote. That's, that's the most profound lawyer answer you're going to get, and I bill by the minute. Um, so just, just one, one second, let me try to take a stab at that. Yes, they can sue, but the VVA deals with express protections of places of, private, places of public accommodation. So between private citizens, it's not illegal for, well, it could be, okay, oh, there's always an exception. But generally speaking, you can be ugly toward one another. Now, however, if you're trying to, they come in to buy a muffin from your muffin store and you say, yo, I don't like your X, if X is one of those protected categories, then they have a cause of action. Okay, question in the back. So the question is, how can a large employer such as Hobby Lobby, et cetera, be able to comply with the VVA while also maintaining hiring practices that will uh, expose them to folks from various walks that could feasibly be a protected class? The answer is comply or be sued. It, it's that simple. They, if they want to do business in Virginia, these are the rules. We're open for business, and here are our rules you've got to play by. So pull, pull out of Virginia if you don't like our rules. It, it really is that simple, or take it to court. Um, and so I think Hobby Lobby is a good, a good example because they sued under the Affordable Care Act um, for being forced to provide, I think, contraceptives. Um, and I, I forget the outcome of that case. Bless you, it was very delicate. Um, and so I'm, I'm not really sure how that's going to apply for the VVA, to, to be honest. Um, but it, as of right now, it's bend the knee or suffer. All right, Jack. Yep. Does a, a, a person who falls within a protected class need to notify their employer of their protected class before having a cause of action? The answer, probably. <laughs> um, that, that's what the law would call notice. You have to be put on notice of, of a thing. Uh, like with trespassing, that is going beyond a known boundary. You have to prove that it's either marked or you were told don't come here, right? That's one of the elements. Um, under, this, under this statutory construction, I believe, yes, they can sue, absolutely, even if the employer had no idea, right? However, and again, because in America, anyone can sue anyone else for any reason, however, there can be motions filed before the lawsuit gets to the point where someone's actually going to you know, have a jury verdict returned, where the employer could say, we had no idea they were a protected class. Right? So we, we were not on notice, so if the termination did not involve any actual any actual animosity toward these two classes, then the employer should be able to have that dismissed at those pretrial motions. Basically say, if we take everything they pleaded as true, they haven't pleaded how I knew that they were a protected class. Now that's just my, I'm a blood and guts prosecutor, folks. Um, I, I've, I've not filed a lawsuit in, uh, against uh, an, an employer or an employee. Um, I, I put them in prison or I take their cars if they're drug dealers, right? Um, so I, I'm not sure what the civil pleading would be, but I think there's a very strong case to be made. Yeah, you're going to get sued even if you didn't know. Uh, so by the way, there is no case law interpreting any of the VVA. No case law at all. Um, so we're, we're flying blind right now. Okay, Jack. Jack owned... How am I doing? On, am I good? Okay. Uh, real quick, Jack owned a bakery out in Colorado. I meant to put a slide in there because it's the most humblest little of stores. It's in a strip mall, and Jack is a self-described cake artist. Uh, he has the masterpiece, masterpiece Cake Shop. You heard about him because he got sued 
by a couple, uh, two men that were getting married, and they asked him to uh, bake and design their wedding cake. Uh, and he said, no, I can't. I'm a Christian, and that violates my tenets. Um, so next slide. Here, here's why it's important. They asked him to design their cake. That's, that's critical because that is an act of creation. He offered to sell them any cake in his store. He offered to bake them any cake in his catalog of cakes, but he would not design them one because in his own words, that would make me a celebrant with you and condoning behavior that violates my, my, my freedom to associate with folks with whom I disagree, and it violates my right to speech. You're, you, essentially, you're making me speak in a way I don't want to speak. Now, that violated local Colorado law. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme, SCOTUS, by the way, Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, uh, asks some questions, identify issues, whether a state and its entities um, have the authority to protect the rights and dignity of gay persons who are or wish to be married but who face discrimination when they seek goods and services. It's a mouthful, I grant you that. And the right of all persons to exercise fundamental freedoms under the First Amendment as applied to the states through the 14th. So here's the conflict we talked about as we wrap up. The right of persons to be able to exist in the marketplace as an employer, as, pardon me, as an employee, as just someone engaged in commerce, the right to exist and be able to engage in commerce without fear of, of reprisal based on who they are, right? We talk about immutable characteristics. Should an African-American have all the same protections under the law? Should they be able to shop at any store they want to? Yes, daggone it. You should be able to. That's the question is, can a person enjoy the rights and liberties of our great country? And the answer is yes, absolutely. That's the question. Does that apply to folks in this particular community with gender identity and sexual orientation? Does that also apply into that subset? And that is a right in direct conflict when that person enjoyment of that absolute right to be able to engage in commerce and to be uh, treated with equal protection of the laws comes into direct conflict with someone's First Amendment rights. Okay, this is critical. These are human rights, according to our, our overlords, right? You have the right to speak. You have the right to uh, practice your faith. That's in conflict. That's essentially what the Supreme Court's asked. Next slide. So here's the actual question presented. Whether Colorado's public accommodations law, public accommodations, uh, to compel Jack to create an expression that violates his sincerely held religious beliefs about marriage whether that violates the free speech and free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Does making Jack bake the cake violate his First Amendment rights? You can still hear the sound of the judges punting that one. Wah! It's just sailing because they did not answer the question. There's so much writing on this question. They just completely dodged it. Essentially, they said, you know, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. But we're just going to say that Colorado acted with impermissible hostility toward religion. We're not going to answer the question of what happens when these rights come into direct conflict. These are tectonic plates of our values as a human society. We're the greatest society that the world has ever produced, and we are asking fundamental questions. Who are we as people? These plates are there. One has to slip. And when it slips, there's going to be massive upheaval. And they punt it. Here's the actual quote. Next slide. This is the commissioner from Colorado to show you animus in, in the public world. Again, reaching the next generation for Christ. This is a post-Christian, maybe even a post-Christendom society. This is a government agent saying, I would also like to reiterate what we said in the hearing or the last meeting. Freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. Whether it be, I mean, we, we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religion to hurt others. This is the commissioner that held Jack essentially liable for violating the Colorado law. That's the quote that sank the case. That's the quote that the Supreme Court hung its hat on in saying that's impermissible hostility to people of all faith. Next slide. So that's the unanswered question. Can a business owner, can an employer, um, can they exercise their First Amendment rights without fear of reprisal under state law, such as the Virginia Vic or um, the VVA, the Virginia Values Act? Or does a person's rights under the VVA trump the First Amendment? Which right is greater? Which tectonic plate is going to win the fight? Um, can the government compel you to speak if you engage in commerce? Uh, 
By the way, Jack's been sued again. The day that the Supreme Court picked up that case to take it up, uh, a uh, trans person came in and ordered a cake to celebrate her birthday and ho uh, holiday of, or the birthday and the trans date for becoming trans. And Jack said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't make you your cake because I disagree with that lifestyle. So the attorney just walked out and sued. Um, and so that, that lawsuit is working its way. It's, it's, it's mired down in local court right now. So Jack is back in it. So we're going to have what we call Masterpiece 2. They're already calling the first one Masterpiece 1. Next slide. Go to these resources. They're helpful. Uh, next slide. All right. Jesus is our example. Okay. We have fired the first salvo, meaning people of faith fire the first shots in response to essentially an invasion, to use a, a, a combat metaphor, if I may. Um, the first salvo landed duds in federal court. It got dismissed for Bob's case, Bob Updegrove, right? But that's up on appeal. Uh, and the state court, at being asked the same question, does the, the plaintiff have standing to sue? That is still waiting to be heard in July. So the big question in Virginia is, does someone actually have to be sued? Do you actually have to have someone bring financial ruin to your doorstep in order for you to find um, an answer from the courts? And we just don't know. Those questions are lingering. And the bigger question of these tectonic rights that we so enjoy and so need are also at play. Next slide. OJ copy and pasted it. Um, so this is the big question. If we're going to answer this one, we have to look at Jesus as our model. Everything I've said up to this point, I want to drive it home. It may come across as hard-lined. I hope it doesn't. I don't mean to cause you offense, but if it does, I, I mean to only speak the truth, but with a heart full of love. And I think that is going to be what this weekend takeaway is, is that we need to reach the next generation with dialogue and with offering some sort of genuine arms open approach. We, we're told disagreement is hate, right? If you disagree, if I, if I don't like your view, that means I hate you. The battle lines have been drawn. I've seen it on Facebook. If you're not an outright ally for this agenda, you are an enemy. I, I actually watched that get posted. That's, that is such a false logic. Um, seek first to understand that, uh, and then to be understood. Listen. Listen to people. Engage them. Sit down with them. Take an example from Jack. When Jack got sued by that trans person, part of the lawsuit was he wanted to meet with her and sit down and talk. So they actually sat down and had a mediation where just Jack and the person trying to bring ruin upon him sat down and had coffee and talked to each other because Jack wanted to hear her story. And they said it was very productive, but they still are at an impasse. But Jack wanted to listen. Take an example from Jack. Next slide. But Christ is our primary model. If there's anything we see from Scripture is that Jesus spent time with the people the religious elite said were unlovable, unclean, unapproachable, right? I think that's our great model here is we may disagree with the application of these. We may not understand a person who looks different from us who may be making decisions we disagree with. We may have friends who fall into these protected classes. We have to love them regardless. Our love is our model as, as Christians. We have to seek to love them through this. And I styled this last slide as turn the cheek, um, but take a stand. Jesus quite literally called for redemption on the men who were mur actively murdering him, right? But he's also the same guy that made a whip and chased out the people from the temple courtyards because they were precluding people from uh, uh, coming and offering uh, at the temple. So he takes a stand, just like the ADF is. And so you can take a stand, but I ask you to remember Christ as your model, to do it with love. Next slide. If Jesus is any model for us, it just, just look for the red letters. He, he's called us to reach our community with arms wide, because remember, he spread his for our, our, our ugliness. And we can do the same for those in our community. This entire presentation is not anti-trans people. It's not anti-gay people. It's not anti-anything. It is pro-Christ. We may disagree with how you're living, but we don't hate you. We may disagree with how these laws have been formed, but we don't hate you. We want to talk with you. And that's how we need to reach the next generation. So with our arms open, and frankly, our mouths shut, let's listen, hear what they have to say.
and respond with love. That he put into this, so thank you very much. We have a little bit more time. I think we ate our dessert right there with dinner. I had dessert scheduled after this talk, so we ate dessert. We have more time to chat, so uh, I don't want to go next step until everybody's had a chance to ask a question. Are there any more questions that remain? Yes, Joshua. Oh so the so the question is. Can churches do something ahead of time to preclude having to deal with some of these issues? Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. Yes, the answer is yes. I'm glad you asked because I forgot. Um, and well, part of the reason I reached out to the ADF attorney was to ask almost verbatim that question, so thank you. Um, yes, there are resources available. Um, I would urge you to uh, check out the resource page that I, I put up on the slideshow, which I don't know how you could do that if I haven't provided. We'll figure it out. Google ADF. I, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can get you the ADF. Already on their mailing list. So the ADF can actually um, do an audit of your organization, uh, whether you're a church, whether you're a bakery, whatever. If you're engaged in commerce in any capacity, I'd encourage you to check out the ADF. They will audit your organization and determine whether you are violating state law. They can help you put up some protective clauses in your websites uh, and your pamphlets whatever uh, and it's also helpful for churches in fact they have a whole page dedicated to um, ecclesiastical or church uh, partners to be able to help them in what is coming what i believe a, a tide of litigation is coming to bankrupt church after church um, and so they, they do have a lot of resources you, i think you have to you have to pay some nominal fee to join their um it's league, but that helps get pulled into paying for attorney's fees to the represent churches that do in fact get sued. So yes, there are resources. Go to ADF, um, Google it, click, and then head there and they, they can help you. So my assumption to the uh, own hypothetical I posed is also no, I don't think they have to because in that instance, the KKK has been, is not any sort of protected class. Um, the KKK is in fact designated as a domestic terrorist organization. Um, and so I think you could shift that just very slightly and you could change the hypothetical and what about a um, African-American being required to say bake a swastika cake for um, the Aryan Brotherhood, which I don't believe has been designated as one. Uh, that is uh, speech that is anathema to them. But again, is the Aryan Brotherhood a uh, protected class? Potentially, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're based on what? Race. So they're an organization that identifies based on the color of their skin or their national heritage. So the question then could turn on what type of organization is being discriminated against and what, uh, you know, why are they formed? Yeah. I also like cake, but I don't like swastika. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Thank you. With the five minutes that we have remaining, I think the most important thing that we could do as a church and including our visitors is to bow our heads and bow the knee and pray. And so I just want to invite you, and I'm going to take a knee, guys. That's how serious I feel about this. But invite you to join me in prayer. Let's spend the last five minutes of our session together tonight praying and asking for God's help on this issue. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.